Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Community Show. You're listening to Jane, and thanks to Doing Time. And Vivian's got a great show lined up for us tonight. There's three interviews with three great speakers, Rod Quantock, and Rod doesn't need any uh, introduction, but I will give him one in a minute, Dagmar Grazik from the International Energy Agency. Uh, Vivian was fortunate enough to speak to Dagmar in Sydney recently. She is the manager for South Asia, Asia for the IEA. And lastly, Lee Eubank, who is a Renewables Community Coordinator for Friends of the Earth Australia. So first up, we have Rod Quantock, who is uh, certainly very well known in Melbourne. He, in the course of his illustrious career, has given many keynote addresses at many conferences on topics as diverse as the history of mathematics, water management, community engagement, road transport, sustainability, etc., etc., Early this year, Quantock became a research associate at the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne, and there he is working on the presentation of climate change impacts and resource crisis. So listen now to Vivian interviewing Rod Quantock. Tonight's guest is comedian and national treasure Rod Quantock. Um, he's with us today to launch his new project on Possible.com, it's called The Last Tintam. Please take down the details, listeners, because you'll want to back this project. So welcome, Rod. Thank you, Vivian. <laughs> What's this I hear that you're joining up with Melbourne Uni? Oh, it's an uh, um, institute that's based at Melbourne University called the uh, Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute. Oh. And um, earlier in the year they um, invited me to be an associate. So I accepted the invitation. Well, you're in good company there. So what do you hope to do? Is this something about climate communications, but what? Oh, look, I've been uh, trying to change people's... Not change people's minds, but get people interested in uh, these problems for a long time. And, uh, oh, look, I worked out 
a while ago that uh, people just, you know, if you talk about polar bears, that's all right, people care, but there's yeah. nothing they can do and they no. don't know how it really applies to them. So I started to think about the things that people do care about. Yeah. And uh, I started to look into the, uh, I began with just, asking the question of uh, if polar bears are going to be extinct by 2030, will Tim Tams be extinct by 2030? <laughs> so I did a little back of the envelope calculation and uh, yeah. my advice to people is to stock up. <laughs> so we'll hook them in on the things they really care about and then talk about climate change. Well, it's a, bit, it's a broader than that, but uh, because I look at things like peak oil, mm. uh, overpopulation, uh, chemicals in the environment. So it's a, it's a range of human impacts on um, the environment and the uh, the world system. So, um, and what I'm trying to do now is to um, uh, just get a really comprehensive catalogue of uh, what we can expect by 2030. And there's enough yeah. science around now to be able to. Well, look, it took me about 15 minutes to <laughs> get the information about uh, Tim Tams. Yeah. Um, but some there are other things more complicated. You know, for people here in Melbourne, you know, the future of uh, the AFL Grand Final oh, when uh, yes. petrol is or oil is, you know, five hundred dollars a barrel, mm. and uh, petrol for your car is twenty dollars a litre. Mm. Uh, are we still going to waste petrol flying footballers from one side of the country <laughs> to the other to kick mm. a bit of leather around for a couple of hours and then fly them home again? So um, there, it applies to everything, holidays and honeymoons and mm. barbecues and beetles and all sorts of things. So it's an attempt to get all those things together to give a, a good picture of what we will have, won't have, where we can live, where we can't live, what yeah. we can do and what we can't do by 2030. I go to lots of talks where there's all these statistics up there on the PowerPoint and you think, oh, yes, yes. But it's oh, got no, to be made more personal, thing. doesn't it? Yeah, well, often I'm the person, not with the PowerPoint, but often I'm the person giving the talk. Yep. One of the things that I noticed and one of the things that sort of stirred me more than most is that even people who think they understand climate change mm. and uh, don't actually understand how severe it's going to be and how immediate uh, the changes are. Most of them at the moment are taking, are becoming obvious in the Northern Hemisphere. They've just had another hottest summer on record. Mm. I think that's probably, I don't know, probably 10 out of the last 15 years of uh, uh, been the hottest year on record at that time um, and now they're having these severe snowstorms which are a result of changes in the uh, distribution of atmospheric heat but here, no people in the Northern Hemisphere are changing their minds at a great pace now because they're being impacted almost every year by floods in England droughts in the United States um, all sorts of things yeah. going on uh, China, droughts, India, floods all sorts of things well, going on. That's what people have always said, look, wait till the big event that'll, that'll stir yeah, people. But we've well, had enough of these all lined up and I blame the media for not really telling it to not us. not in the media at They all, don't tell us, why. do they? The um, boreal forest, Canada oh. and Siberia, apparently it's been on fire, uncontrollable fires and the permafrost is yes, melting. It happened in, no, uh, look, the things that do get reported are basically when a few people die. Listen, um, I looked up on the um, website of this Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute and I've been to quite a lot of their talks over the last few years and they have talks on things like ethics in the Anthropocene and they yes. publish books about avoiding climate change as mm. if it's a comet coming from outer space rather than mm. something we've got to prevent. 
I want to know what your role will be there. Will you be helping them get real? Will you be like a stage oh, no, manager, look, helping really, them galvanise the audience? Um, no, look, I don't have an office there. I don't have any uh, funding from them. Mm. No, it's a it's a position where, oh, look, I don't know if it's the right word. <laughs> Probably <laughs> it's the wrong word, but yeah. um, basically I suppose I'm some sort of um, ambassador. Yeah. Um, now, they'll support me in this um, research project that I want to do, but the, the support will be in terms of access to uh, information yeah. that uh, you can only really get if you've uh, got a, some sort of ID with a tertiary institution, so mm-hmm. I'll have that. Um, and you can see on the website that there's some really extraordinary people there, mm-hmm. and the Sustainable Society Institute is really about involving um, the humanities and social sciences in the discussion, so that's why you get questions about ethics. Well, I'd like you to help them with their PowerPoints, Rod, because... When I've gone to your shows, the PowerPoints are very entertaining, but practically any university talk I go to, they just read the PowerPoint things that are up in front of your eyes and they put these indecipherable graphs in front of you. And I try to record a talk, you know, for the radio and I just have to junk it because it's too boring and it's just depending on the PowerPoint. So what things do you think about communications that need to change? I mean, you're a comedian, you can hold an audience, you get people in and it's usually just yourself, really, your persona. So what, what... do you want to see? Because a lot of scientists haven't got any training in communication, but it's not just them. It's Lots of people oh, make it very bland. Even me, I do this radio every Monday, and I think I'm in danger also of making it kind of bland. Yep. I oh, look, it's the same with doctors. Some doctors have very good bedside manner and some doctors don't. I mean, not everybody's born to be a communicator, and I'm sure there are things you can learn to improve it. But uh, for me, it's... Um, well, there's two outcomes to this. One is to basically have an, an online catalogue so if people want to know um, whether closed pegs are going to be around in 2030 they can go to the <laughs> website, they can look that up and they can see the scientific um, attributions that have brought me to the conclusion that we won't have plastic clothes pegs mm. I'm pretty confident we won't have those mm. unless you buy them in a second hand shop by mm. 2030 and I'd ask the question too of whether or not there'll be second hand shops so um, but the, the reason for it ultimately in the end is to be able to give people an indication of what they've got a plan for. And the other aspect of it is as it goes along, it's a 12-month project, as it goes along just to re- constantly be putting out press releases saying um, uh, latest research shows Tim Tams will be extinct by 2030 or mm. you know, scientists say that um, the Australian Open Tennis will be um, a one-in-five-year chance of uh, not happening because of uh, extreme heat over summer mm. so I, I want to get those messages out constantly but in the longer term I, would, I just want to have that uh, catalogue of things that are uh, indisputable scientifically I'm, I'm not going to put things up there on a whim mm. um, I want to know that I can refer people to research papers and, uh, and reports that um, validate and vindicate my um, uh, my findings. Uh, well, Rod, as you know, Beyond Zero Emissions is a sort of climate change solutions group, and yeah, I, I don't so much want to know if I need to stock up on clothes pegs and Tim Tams in case they run out, but I want to know what action I can take to prevent them running well, out and to that's prevent. That's what this is about. Uh, look, what. We're at the stage now where there's really nothing people can do about climate change. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, There's nothing even the most well-intentioned government in the world can do about it. We're over 400 parts per million of CO2. There's no 
indicate, in fact, the the, um, uh, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, even after Copenhagen and every other thing, is uh, they're at record year after year they hit uh, hit record levels. So uh, we're not going to slow down before too long. You know, the coal that uh, Australia depends on having a bit of a blow at the moment because other countries are mm. thinking about cutting back or their economies are down and dipping. Mm. But we'll keep shipping it out. We mightn't get every last lump of it to China or mm. India, but we will get a lot of it to China and India. Mm. And uh, each lump that you burn is another molecule of CO2 into the atmosphere. At the moment, I think we're adding around three parts per million to the atmosphere and that's not allowing for the parts uh, the carbon dioxide going into the ocean so mm. it's, well, uh, in terms of you know being able to stop the changes you can't what you've got to do is be realistic about um, what you can do with what what you will have and that's again what this project's about and my uh, my advice for people is to uh, think uh, almost microscopically locally to think about uh, building communities that share permaculture backyards, knock the fences down and uh, share water tanks and um, share solar or wind generation. But it'll be on a very, very small scale. Mm. But it has to be done in light of the fact that, you know, Melbourne's going to have 40% less water um, by 2050. You can't make it. Uh, well, you can in a desal plant, but anyway, leaving that aside. Um, so people have got to be very sensible about the natural resources that they have access to and the natural resources they use. Okay, well, look, and I can see where you're coming from, Rod, but look, on, um, I've been going along, you know, for four years doing this program, and I interview, you know, everybody I can find who's giving talks, who's giving, um, yes. you know, written books, who's artists too, and you, I've interviewed you before, yeah. you know, various comedy shows you've done. Just to kind of galvanise people into thinking about this, a lot of people don't want to, though, and Naomi Klein's new book about climate change is called This Changes Everything, but as far as I can see, it doesn't change anything for most of the people I know. No, no, that's exactly right. And um, So, look, I've given up on trying to change everything and change people's minds. I don't think what you said earlier about a major event Mm. um, may be the thing to change people's mind, but Mm. as I say, even if... uh, even if the world went to... Well, look, the call at the moment, even from the International Energy Agency, which is, you know, represents the oil mm. interests of the world in the main, um, they're talking an 80% reduction by 2018 if we want to stay below 2 degrees C. Mm. Um, now, I've been to enough talks and read enough books and, and you know, um, so on to know that um, we've gone past any chance of stopping at 2 degrees mm. C. Well, look, there's another Radio 3CR program called EcoShock. Do you ever yes. listen to that? Yeah. Oh, yes, that's all. I've got every episode of EcoShock <laughs> on my right. phone. Well, look, I, yeah, I, I go walking, you know, walk the dog, and I listen to those things, and I, it actually shocks the socks off me. And they talk about things like the clathrate gun going off yes. in the Arctic. Now, I've yep. never heard that on ABC or on any other radio program or TV, but it's a very... A uh, very good image, isn't it? The clathrate gun. It's kind of a journalistic uh, idea. Is, but the last, oh, earlier this, must be earlier this year, and somewhere I cut it out and kept it. Um, the, the Age here in Melbourne, so I'd assume the Sydney Morning Herald too, ran a, ran a front page story with a, a huge double page spread inside uh, about the melting of the uh, 
clathrates and the release mm. of uh, methane into the atmosphere. Mm. And it was titled the methane bomb or something. Mm. And it was there for a day and, you know, there were a couple of letters and then, you know, it was gone because a footballer did his groin or Kim Kardashian got mm. a sex tape out or, yeah, yeah. you know, there's so much contending information. But you say, the, you know, people will worry about Tim Tam, you know, like you jokingly get them in on the Tim Tams and the football um, future. But uh, th- that, that radio show, quite a few people on that have said that the human race will be extinct by 2030, and that's the date of your, your project's called Tim, the last Tim Tam, 2030. Uh, do you think we should do more messaging like that, sort of very alarming, very grabby, very um, uh, shocking? Look, I or do. I, mean, I, I really... I think... Look, people are wasting their time if they think that they're going to be able to buy a cappuccino in Brunswick Street on a Saturday morning in mm. 2030 mm. Uh, and that everything will be exactly the same, but it's going to be wind turbines and solar panels. Mm. Um, it's not going to be the same. The, the changes that uh, our environment and our ecologies are going to go through are just going to affect everything. Mm. And the idea of going to university now to study to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor, noble, and you will still need uh, people who can do those things, but they'd be much better off learning permaculture and uh, uh-huh. other sustainable survival skills. I mean, my yeah. vision's really bleak, mm. people of what... Can I just ask you one last question? I went down to Acme the other day. It was a very hot day, and I went in there... And I watched a film, an old film called On the Beach. Do you remember oh, yes, that one? I've got a copy of that. I right. that often. Well, at the end of that, um, at the end of the film, it's the end of the world. Nuclear war has just wiped out the whole of the northern part of the world and just Melbourne is left. And they all go off quietly to die. And it's very peaceful and very orderly. And I think, oh, yes. apart from Al Gore's film that got through, you know, about mm. climate change, I, I don't see the images of the future like that. I wonder, do we think it'll just be like on the beach, that one day the government will issue, uh, issue us with tablets and we'll go <laughs> off quietly? <laughs> and uh, Philip Nitschke will get his dream come true on a grand scale. <laughs> That's right. And my question is, why don't the artists, like the film artists, do that? There have been ridiculous sort of well, future fictions. Uh, that are... a bit of, but what these things are tapping into is the zeitgeist of anxiety. Yeah. That's I think right. people do feel that there's something going on in the background of their lives that's oh, having an effect. That's right. And, and yes, it, and, and so there are many, many disaster movies coming out now about zombies and mm. cannibalism, and there was, um, I don't know, the, the one about the Ice Age hitting North America came out three or four years ago. Yeah. Um, so, yes, they've been out. Look, Ros, we have to go now, but yes, we do. thank you so much for that. And I really w- wish you luck with your um, thing. And just tell people, if they want to support you, they can donate. This is the launch today, the 1st yes. of December. I think it's just through this next three weeks. If they you, can... Yes, if you just go to Possible, yeah. uh, the Possible website yeah. um, and, the and name look is for The Last Tim Tam. The Last Tim Tam. All right. You'll so, find me there. Fantastic. Thank you, Rod. Uh, and oh, thank no, you. Look, thank you, Vivian. It's <laughs> always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. And uh, I wish you well with the, uh, with the program. And that was Vivian Langford interviewing Rod Quantock. And what do you think? Does Rod have a bleak view of the future or simply a realistic one? Next up, we have an interview with Dagmar Grazik. And Dagmar is the manager for South Asia at the International Energy Agency, which is often referred to as the IEA. The IEA, for those of you who weren't around then, was founded in 1973-74 and it was founded in response to major disruptions in oil supply. 
and uh, they coordinated a, a, a uh, collective release of emergency oil stocks in response to that crisis. Uh, since then, as Rod Quantock mentioned, they have uh, mainly been representative of the oil industry, but they have a very strong voice in the global conversation around energy. Here's Vivian talking to Dagmar Grazik from IEA. I attended the Energy Efficiency Conference in Sydney. I was a little out of my depth. There were people there from industry and uh, many very august bodies. And I was so pleased to uh, be able to interview someone from the IEA. The International Energy Agency is always giving reports and uh, telling us the way energy should go. And this uh, person is called Dagmar Graschik. She was very um, personable and she gave very interesting talk She's the representative of the International Energy Agency in Southeast Asia. And uh, I liked talking to her because she could put it really clearly about how the uh, countries that are now developing can leapfrog the sort of dirty energy sources that we've got us where we are through the Industrial Revolution, but leapfrog those especially through energy efficiency. Now, the IEA has just launched its 2014 Energy Efficiency Report and I asked her what is involved in a country like India or Malaysia investing in energy efficiency. I think of personal things I could do like putting in LED lights, but what can you do at a national level? Dagmar Grazczyk. Well, I think, first of all, you need a very strong political commitment and the political will to move forward with energy efficiency. Then it's very important to communicate with all different stakeholders involved. So this could be the residential sector, people like you who might wish to make their houses more energy efficient. It would be the industry to point out what they would benefit from actually investing money in improving their energy efficiency. It could be generally looking at how we build our cities, our transport system and other areas. So specifically for a residential unit owner, like you, um, you could think about changing the lights as a first step. You would also look out when you buy appliances that you buy only appliances are rated as energy efficient appliances. It could mean that you invite somebody to come and undertake an energy audit of your house and that you'd simply consider what are the easy or the more complicated steps to make your own home more energy efficient. One very simple example. Um, simply by investing in extension cords that you can switch on and off. Mm. If you do this, you automatically get into the habit of saving energy. But at a national level, do governments really drive this energy efficiency? You mentioned in your talk about Sweden um, decoupling its um, growth from the energy expenditure. How do, how do government policies drive this? As I, as I just said, you need a very strong political will to go into the different sectors that consume energy. Mm. This would be industry, residential, transport, and of course the energy providers. And you can either set targets for industry, which they have to comply with, so they have to improve their efficiency on a regular basis. You also need to make sure that the funding is available. Mm. You need to educate them. You need technical personnel. So it's a very complex matter that cannot be done overnight, where you need a long-term roadmap to see how you can move forward. So for example, in Germany, we have a development bank that has set up a special program to provide easy credit and affordable credit to homeowners to make their houses more energy efficient. Yeah. But this is supported by the fact that we have now 
a law in Germany, if you want to sell your house, you need to have an energy pass. So when you are in the market to buy a new home, you will know upfront what your house is consuming. And that also gives an incentive to make your house more energy efficient. And this all feeds back to government policy. I think these frameworks are very important. Um, in the region that you serve, let's talk about a country like India. I think you said yesterday 340 million people in India don't have any access to electricity. How important is an energy efficiency focus compared, say, to supplying all that electricity with wind power and solar panels? Um, there is no either or. A country mm -hmm. like India with so many people and still growing in terms of population has no choice. They have to use everything that's available. So it's not the question of either doing energy efficiency or solar and wind. They do everything. But they will make it in the way they use polar, solar and wind, they try to make it as efficient as possible. And they try to bring in the efficiency at an early level because any unit not consumed by you and me is a unit that could potentially be sold to people or given to people that don't yet have access to electricity. So there is no trade-off. No. It's really both. Yeah. And as you said, um, well, you, uh, you mentioned Pondicherry, yeah. and I was fascinated to hear about that state. Apparently they have proudly made the point of 100% electrification. Yeah. Well, tell us about how they are offsetting this growth, you know, in electricity by promoting LED bulbs in the um, domestic market, and how will they expand it council by council? I think you said it's at the council level rather than at the government level, state government level. And um, taking it to scale through the rest of India. Thank you for asking this question because I think this is really a great project. Um, Puducherry is one of the smaller states in India, and this project covers specifically 245,000 households. And it is planning to distribute 735,000 LED lights to this household. And the calculations that were made before the program was launched would be that this would result in an 87% reduction in consumption or expressed in units, it would be 5.7 million kilowatt hours reduction in losses that the system is at the mm. moment having. So that's an enormous amount for a small mm. unit when you think about with just one single project you can have an 87% reduction in energy consumption. And can you tell me how does the IEA sort of work with countries like India? I think the IEA members are mostly Europe and North America, aren't they? But, um, but and Australia, yes, uh, the developed economies, but how does the IEA um, take an interest in these countries? Do you stimulate or do you invest or what do you do? Um, when you look at how the energy world is changing, then you will see that already energy consumption, energy demand outside of our member countries is larger than in our member countries. So for the IEA to remain relevant in our policy advice and our efforts at energy security and climate change, we must work with countries that for one reason or the other cannot be a member in our agency. And so what we do with them, we have regular political exchanges with them and every two years we sit down and we develop jointly a work program to identify priority areas in which the country wishes to work with us. So for India specifically, this is energy security because India is important almost 80% of the oil demand and energy efficiency. So we have been working with India on energy efficiency since 2003, focusing on the different areas like industry, like appliances, helping them to launch label and standards, building codes, and now also very much on the industry side where we work jointly with the industry to do a cement road 
roadmap to improve energy efficiency in the Indian cement sector? This is, I'll tell you, listeners, we've been just in a session and Alan Pierce gave a lot of great praise to Dagmar and the IEA for their work in these ind- industries that really need help to boost efficiency. But look, Dagmar, you have a very strong background in economics and for me, not being an economist, I don't understand really how growth, which is every day, it's in every sentence, on every news broadcast, growth is such an indicator of health in every way of a country. Growth is meant to be an economic goal, but it seems incompatible with the global temperature rise of two degrees centigrade that we're trying to keep below. How do you explain that and what is the alternative? Well, that's a very difficult question. I'm not sure I can answer this. Um, What we have shown in some of our work is that actually some countries manage to decouple their growth from the energy consumption, but they're still consuming energy, but they're consuming less energy than they did before to produce the same output. So that's definitely a first way to start. Um, The real challenge for me is that when I'm sitting at home or when I'm sitting here now in Sydney, um, I have a very different view than when I'm visiting India and I'm at a village level and I can see how much supply of energy would make a difference to the life of people. Mm. And so in order to let these people participate in the life that we are having, which simply can mean education, water, electricity also means, for example, having a well, having water supply. Mm. You don't need to go and collect Mm. water from a pump. Um, Can make such a big difference to their overall health and well-being. So it's very difficult to to look at this development with our eyes. Mm. For them, there needs to be a certain growth, there need to be change, there needs to be energy. So the question is, how can we deliver this in a way that is compatible with our global goals, and how can we deliver this in a way that will also not pollute their own local environment? Mm. Because one thing that we have noticed, people will be perhaps indifferent to global pollution, but they will be very personally affected by local Mm. pollution. And so the issue is to catch the population at the moment when impacts happening in their neighborhood and make them aware that they can contribute to a change. So what we try to do is to help the countries in the emerging world to find the solutions that can leapfrog the mistakes we made in our countries and make use of the new technology Mm. and make use about thinking and uh, possibilities that we didn't have when we built our system 50 or 100 years ago. Yes, well, I think that that could be a whole other program because that's such a big subject, isn't it? But you mentioned the billions of of money that uh, China is investing in energy efficiency. I wonder, can this possibly offset their economic growth? Well, if they're investing it, it actually contributes to, to economic growth. It mm. might help to reduce their energy consumption yes. because they clearly have been driven by very strong local pollution issues and they have also been realizing that there is a lot to be gained by investing in energy efficiency to help meeting other aspirations of the country. And something very important, which we talked about yesterday, um, energy efficiency is also a market. It is a market that can help to create jobs. It is a market that can train people and so offers a whole set of new opportunities. Mm. In that sense, it's a positive market. Mm. It doesn't always have to be something with negative consequences. And I think China is looking at those opportunities. That's right. And skills, development skills. skills. Very much so. It looks at skills. We heard about this in the sessions today. Um, Australia has also invested a lot in training people to Mm. do energy audits to identify. You need a trained eye to identify the opportunities. And once you have it, then you can find the targeted solution. 
Well, Beyond Zero Emissions is the organisation that has this radio show, and we're researching many aspects, many sectors, but one of the main ones is the transport Mm. sector, which you spoke about yesterday. And our aim is to get the transport sector down to zero emissions. And you spoke of a global saving of something like $190 billion if fuel efficiency standards were taken to scale across the world for cars or vehicles. And I think there would still be a lot of inefficient old cars on the road, you know, handed down and handed down and hanging around for 20 or 30 years. So is zero emissions for the transport sector really out of the question? It's a very tough question. Um, I would say it's a long-term aim because even if we are going to move to electric vehicles, the electricity has to be produced somewhere. Mm. So we are not yet at a, at a state where we can have technology and transport that would be completely emission-free. I, I don't see this as anywhere in the short to medium term as a possibility. I think what the aim is and what we have been trying to promote that governments should take a systems approach. So you shouldn't be looking at building roads or looking at personal vehicles only in isolation. You need to look at this as part of a larger transport system. That will be the way forward to go. And that means, for example, in the cities where you can have this, where the climate is conducive, you can build the cities back from being built for cars and build them back to being used by people who walk, by people who use bicycles. And one example is where I live in Paris. They have a very very successful scheme to make bicycles available everywhere on the streets as well as electrical vehicles. So you have an annual subscription and you can pick a bicycle anywhere in Paris, run it for 30 minutes and return it free of charge beyond the 30 euros you pay per year. And that has taken off exponentially. Mm-hmm. It's also possible for visitors to do this. And so is Paris has suddenly become a bicycle city and suddenly they start building bicycleways, which didn't exist when I moved there almost 12 years ago. Now we're doing the same for electrical vehicles. We have created space taken away from personal private vehicle to build parking stations and recharging stations for electric vehicles. And that has also contributed to people thinking twice about buying their own vehicle because they can take it off the street, don't have to pay insurance, don't have to worry about maintenance and don't need to park it. So what we say is it needs to be a system. You need to look at combining all the different modes. But I don't think we will be seeing zero emission transport in the short-term future or no. the medium-term future. Well, look, I must admit my mind was reeling at the big numbers that you're so familiar with and you, you, know, you obviously deal with these and almost play with them, but I can't take them in really. But global, you said global traffic is set to expand by 90%, but mostly outside the OECD countries. I wonder, when you think big schemes like IEA can think about these things, where should infrastructure dollars be put? Should they be in rail or roads? Should they be in electrical vehicle recharging stations or more petrol pumps? Should we have more airports or something smarter? You said you saw big opportunities. What are they? They're big challenges. And, of (laughs) course, when you have big challenges, you have big opportunities. Um, As I said before, all the issues you mentioned, they all need to be considered. The situation is so complex that one one solution can simply not meet all the different demands. We are very much used to transport. You know, I could come here very easily. You came here. We have many different options. But when you put yourself into a rural village somewhere in Asia or sub-Saharan Africa, a lack of transport means 
you can't get to the hospital to deliver your baby because you can't get there. You can't go to the hospital if you have a serious illness because nobody brings you there. But it also means you can't bring your product to the market because you don't have transport. You can't go to school because maybe the next school is two hours walking away. So transport has a very important impact on the social development and economic development of people in rural areas. So the question is how to go about this. And one of the aspects is to try and find the mode that is most suitable for that situation. So what we found in some areas where I worked earlier in Sri Lanka, that people didn't necessarily want to have their own car, but they wanted a reliable bus service that would really come, that they would know it comes Monday at 10. <laughs> so when they have the product that needs to come to the market, they know the bus will come and bring them there. And that was already a major step towards their own mobility and their own connectivity with their compatriots in, in the bigger cities. So when we're looking now at infrastructure in cities, when you look at the at the rail investment that is taking place in China, the very modern trains that come up that makes my own country, Germany, looks very old because <laughs> we are not investing in the rail infrastructure in the way we should be investing. And there you can see that some countries are really leapfrogging, embracing new technologies and bringing much more innovative ideas to connect people because that's what people want to be. They want to be connected. They don't want to live in isolation. Yes, well, to our shame, I think Australia is the only country that doesn't have a high-speed rail and, the, you know, we can see the it's advantage to us. <laughs> well, it is, but it would decentralise from our big congested cities. We could yeah. uh, build all those secondary cities. Anyway, thank you very much, Dagmar. We've been speaking to Dagmar Grashik from the International Energy Agency and welcome to Australia and thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much again. I had a great time. Next, we've got an interview with Lee Eubank for you. Lee works for the Friends of the Earth and has done so for the last two years in the capacity as a Yes to Renewables Community Coordinator. He's very well published in Australia. He's had his commentary on climate and energy politics published in the National Times, uh, been on ABC's The Drums, The Drum, Crikey, uh, The Geelong Advertiser, and more recently, Lee has lectured the Urban Planning and Energy and Energy Policy and Management courses at RMIT. Here's Lee speaking with Vivian. We've got Lee Eubank in the studio today, and he's written a terrific article called How Green, Green Energy, no, sorry, How Clean Energy Played Out in the Victorian Election, which is exactly what we need to know. We need to analyse the Victorian election. Welcome, Lee. Good day, Viv. Thank you for coming in. Um, you said in your article that it's a new era now. We've got a new government. Do you think that's a bit inflated? <laughs> oh, no. Um, look, I think I think Labor, the new Labor government. You know, we've seen the election of a pro-renewable energy government. Um, you know, Daniel Andrews. You know, made a high-profile visit to a wind farm out near Ararat to announce his. Uh, Wind energy policies. So yeah, ah. so this is definitely yeah. um, a new era, especially mm-hmm. after the the previous administration, the Bailiu and Napthine governments mm. that were fairly regressive on all things renewable energy. Well, I remember very clearly when the first anti-wind farm legislation came through. It was almost for people like us. It was like gobsmacking, wasn't it? And it must have been terrible for the industry. Can you just remind us the history? What did Bailiu actually do, and through then to Napthine? Yep, sure. So uh, the previous Premier, Ted Bailiu, um, he enacted a, a range, a whole suite of anti-wind farm laws, and these were executive decisions made by the planning minister, so they didn't have to pass through the parliament. Um, they were changes that 
are within the the minister's discretion. So they enacted a two-kilometre right of veto. So that allowed householders living within two kilometres of a proposed wind farm to block that wind farm from going ahead. So obviously there aren't any similar uh, restrictions on fossil fuel developments, on coal or coal mines or gas power plants or even coal seam gas. Mm. So we really did see you know, some du- clear double standards emerge. Um, and in addition to that, there were also blanket bans um, for wind farm developments imposed in the windiest parts of the state. So this was a very, um, very targeted, very intentional um, suite of policy reforms to really curtail the renewable energy sector. Were they the parts of the state where people voted mostly for the Liberals? Uh, no. Um, I mean, if you look at the seat of Macedon, um, which has re-elected a Labor member. Um, Ripon, where there was a Labor member, you know, some of these areas were the most um, viable for wind mm-hmm. um, and they were where the blanket bans were imposed and the two-kilometre right of veto had a big um, detrimental effect. Well, tell us about the costs because I've been alarmed really to see so many things to do with the renewable energy in New South Wales and, and around here just shutting down, Keppel yep. Prince shutting down was one, but this whole industry, it's not just jobs putting up wind farms, it's the whole industry. Tell us about mm. that. How have they suffered in this period? Yeah, that's right. Well, the the analysis that Friends of the Earth did um, earlier this year, we found that the anti-wind farm laws cost 438 megawatts of clean renewable energy. Um, so that's enough to power a quarter of a million homes. So quite substantial mm. you know, carbon emission savings were missed there. Um, The scraps laws also um, stalled $864 million worth of investment, 490 construction jobs, 64 ongoing jobs for the life of the project, Mm. which is around 30 years. Um, And in terms of the, you know, flow on economic benefits, you know, that looks like um, around $10.5 million a million dollars worth of investment in regional economies and about 2.1 million worth of drought-proof income for farmers that mm. was missed. Wow. Well, if you said it was just the planning mission, uh, planning minister's um, right to do this, would it mm. now be possible for the new planning minister to just reverse that? Indeed, indeed. No new laws, really? Just no, that's right. I mean, with the project. this is an executive decision. Mm. Um, it's within the discretionary powers of the minister. So, yeah. you know, we, we really, um, you know, expect Labor to act very quickly on this Great. and then start addressing um, the issue of how do we actually get wind farms built in the yeah. state. Well, our audience are, you know, climate change activists, and I'm sure they would really like to know from you, and you're a big campaigner, what was the grassroots campaign like? Because just a few days before the election, I interviewed the um, um, Labor Party, Lily D'Ambrosio, and she didn't have an environment policy. She said, oh, it's mm. under embargo. And people were already pre-polling at that stage, so mm. they were keeping the environment under wraps. Um, I think the grassroots were pushing and pushing to get the climate on the agenda, but the mm. party seemed to not want to talk about it. Yep. How did you? How did the campaign go? Yeah, so the grassroots campaign that that Yes to Renewables ran, so this is a Friends of the Earth campaign, um, we we did we had our own model. Um, so we worked in partnership with three sustainability groups in two electorates, um, the electorate of Macedon and the electorate of South Barwon. Um, 
So up in Macedon, the story there was that the blanket bands um, had killed off a community wind farm project near Woodend. Um, meanwhile, the successful Hepburn wind farm mm-hmm. was operating in the other half of the electorate. So there was a clear double standards there. Yeah. Um, we worked in partnership with the Macedon Rangers Sustainability Group. Um, we, you know, we held several, um, you know, stunts. Uh, we we released. Um, what did you do? Oh well, we on the anniversary, the third anniversary of the anti wind farm laws, we actually um, held a gathering on the border. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, where you know on the right side of the the picture you oh, can yes. have wind farms, yeah. and on the left you can't. So yeah. just to highlight how arbitrary these laws are, mm-hmm. um, we did a community bike ride for renewables to the proposed site, mm-hmm. um, and that attracted 60, 60 plus people. Um, there was a really strong showing at the People's Climate March in Kyneton, um, film nights, uh, you know, you name it, candidates forums, all the usual. Mm. So people are keen up there because they've got the wind resource and it's it's are they committed sort of ideologically to, are they sort of progressive, let's say, about climate change? They, they, understand, they want it for that as well as just the jobs? Oh, look, I think, you, you know, Renewable energy attracts people um, who have their own motivations mm. for for supporting renewables. For some people, it is a community development um, initiative. Yeah. For others, it is you know tackling climate that is front and centre. Um, so yeah, I mean, and everyone in between. So yeah. Well, as I said, the big parties seem to be trying to keep it off the agenda. The Greens were very happy to talk to it. I had I had several of the candidates in here before in the lead up. But the other parties were just all very hedgy about it and the Liberals just refused to come and talk to us about it. I had one mm. man from the National Party. He was a bit interesting from Mildura, but he more or less said, you know, we won't build that Mildura solar plant or Silex won't be able to un- until it's really profitable, until he wouldn't, he wouldn't contemplate any government um, support for it or, in, you know, subsidy for it or anything like that. In, um, so I think the big parties are still very sort of backwards on this. And I'd like you to now outline for us what are the ALP's commitments you know what have they actually committed to so we can hold them to those commitments Mm. in the next few months yep well the Victorian Labor Party you know they did come out uh, you know fairly strong on wind energy so they they have committed to removing the worst aspects of the coalition's anti-wind farm laws so the two kilometer right of veto will go um, and that will be replaced with a one kilometer um, buffer zone between homes and proposed turbines, mm-hmm. and that is, uh, you know, roughly equivalent to um, the New Zealand noise standards. Um, they will allow community wind farms in the the areas designated um, blanket bands for wind energy. So that's a positive step forward, and they'll also restore the um, they'll restore the planning minister as the key decision maker for projects rather than local councils. Yes, I imagine it's quite exhausting for local councils to get behind this. It's a very tricky thing, isn't it, putting up a proposal? The, the companies do, but but what was the council role in that before? Mm, yeah, well, what we what we did see, um, it was highly problematic mm. having the local councils as the responsible authority yep. making decisions about wind farms. Um, one only has to look to central Victoria back in 2012 and 13 to see that um, local government is very susceptible to fear campaigns yes. on the ground. Yeah. Um, so we saw the anti-wind farmer, uh, farm campaigners go up to uh, to Trawal and Talarook and Seymour 
and they really did scare the pants off the community up there. Mm. Um, and that resulted in the councillors voting down a project that really should have been approved. Mm. Um, the proponent took the council to VCAT um, and the council spent in order of $200,000 uh, fighting against a proposal that, that really did pass all of the, all yeah. of the, law, all of the restrictions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, making the, making the minister the responsible authority should save local councils a lot of money and, and, and you know, have a, a little bit a, more of an um, efficient process for making decisions. Before we move on from that, this business about the fear campaign, a lot of listeners will remember all that business about Warborough Foundation and so on and murky goings on around there. But um, my understanding from all the different people I've spoken to was that if a, a wind company consults with the community, really fair and square, properly consults, um, and the people are all sort of on board with the main reasons for it, the benefits to them, and it's all nicely done, then there's no problem. There's no there's no sickness, there's no headaches, there's no problem. It's only when it comes into this sort of emotional zone of fear, you know, towns divided. I went to one town called Burrawa in New South Wales, and the town was literally divided with posters for the anti-wind up one end of the town and 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 posters for the lovely <laughs> vision of the wind farm down the other end of the town and it was quite unpleasant. So I think it's a more of, it's got to be managed well the consultation. Is that your feeling? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I mean <laughs> wind developers you need to be very careful. Yeah. Um you know, no one wants to find out there's a 200 turbine um, wind farm going up no. down the road in the newspaper. No. You know, they should go in early and yeah. really um, bring the community along with mm. the journey. It can be a really positive story. Uh, you know, one only has to look to the Kanua Bridge development um, out just past Bendigo. Um, you know, this project, there were no ob- objections. Um, people living within five kilometres of the wind farm will have a an economic benefit. So there is a shared benefits model, which is good. But, you know, the interesting difference between that project and, say, Cherry Tree Range um, in central Victoria is the presence of the anti-wind farm campaign. So in Kanua Bridge, there were no anti-wind farm campaigners on the Mm. ground stirring up trouble, whereas in central Victoria, they did go into town and scare the pants off the community. Could you tell us now, we're back to the Victorian election, the jobs. A lot of parties, the parties seem to want to link jobs to everything, just as they're closing factories down one end of our economy, Mm. they're saying they're promising jobs in another. I think it's a bit of a fraud myself. But uh, the Labor Party certainly has a a back-to-work policy, promising Mm. lots of jobs. Um, Are many of these related to renewable energy? Well, they have identified renewable energy and new energy as one of the five priority areas for um, the $200 million regional jobs fund. Um, And there is a a $20 million allocation specifically for renewable energy um, to incentivise some um, some new projects to be to be built, so I think that's really encouraging. But it is early days. Um, yeah. You know, Labor have committed to restoring fair wind farm laws. You know, they are you know allocating some money to renewable energy, but we really do need a target for renewable energy in the state. Mm. Um, South Australia's target for renewable energy has been lifted to fifty percent by twenty twenty five. Um, the ACT, they're even more ambitious, 90% mm-hmm. by 2020. I think Victorians really want the same accountability. You know, we want to know how much renewable energy will the government 
bring online in its first term. And, you know, another way of looking at it is that, you know, Labor have been really clear with how many level crossings that they're going to remove when they're in government in their first term. How much renewable energy would they like to see rolled out across the state? Yes, I'd like to see an annual target. I'm sick of these targets that go off into the never-never. I'd like to see how many are we going to do this year by this financial year or next financial year, that sort of thing, Hmm. so that we can see it. You know, we can test them on... I I really think we should really campaign hard on this now to keep them to those commitments. So the Vic RET would be the old RET thing that was in the Victorian Parliament dusted off and represented. Is there any legal problem with that? If if the federal RET stays there... Hmm. Yeah, see, Friends of the Earth, we've, we've been um, calling on the Victorian political parties, um, you know, Labor, the Coalition, to support a Victorian renewable energy target. There are no barriers to Victoria having its own target. Um, Anne Cayley's, the RMIT law academic, she kind of set out a, a suite of, of policies that could be used to help Victoria meet oh, a renewables target. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, with so much uncertainty on the federal level, oh, we do yeah. need the state politicians to stand up and to, you know, restore certainty to the sector so mm. we can actually start getting on with the job. Mm. Have you had any talks with industry people about this? You know, do you know their feeling? Are they heartened by this change of government in Victoria? Oh, look, I believe so. Um, you know, the, the anti-wind farm laws, you know, were bad uh, policy mm. Um, but also bad um, symbolically. Um, so with the election of the Daniel Andrews government, we do have a pro-renewable energy government yeah. um, in Victoria now. And, you know, that that has sen- sent a big signal to those at the federal level. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Tony Abbott and, you know, his attack on the national renewable energy target and also the um, the crossbench Senate inquiry into wind energy you know the result in Victoria at the weekend shows that um, you know if you're if you're throwing throwing in play if you're setting up barriers to renewables yeah. they won't stand the test of time mm-hmm. you'll be booted from office. Mm-hmm. And we'll leave the that interview with Lee Eubank there. Lee being the Yes to Renewables Community Coordinator from Friends of the Earth. That brings the show to a conclusion tonight, and I'm racing the clock here. We want to thank Rod Quantock uh, with, with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute, Dagmar Grazik from International Energy uh, Agency, and Lee Eubrank from Friends of the Earth. Also, thanks for putting the show together. Go to Vivian, Glenn, Miwa, Roger, Adele, Teddy, and lastly but not leastly, Michael Smith for his ongoing support. And uh, everybody, put your shoulder to the climate change wheel. And if you're not already involved, get some of your friends who aren't involved involved. There's plenty of uh, environmental groups you can lend your time, your voice or your money to. And uh, if you'd like to do some of that volunteering, you can go to the BZE website, that's bze.org.au, or possibly get involved with 3CR. Both of those websites have uh, the capacity for volunteers. So have a good week. Listen to us next Monday, 5 o'clock on 3CR.